In your Bibles this morning, we would direct your attention to two passages for which we'll be reading. The first from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 21 uh, through 26. In your pew Bible, this is on page 1115. And then the words of our text this morning will be taken from Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. And this is on page 1346. Uh, after uh, a, a break with uh, Easter and uh, other such occasions, we had gyms uh, Sunday, last Sunday, so we've taken a break from our series of sermons through the Epistle of Ephesians, uh, but this morning we return back to that series, and as we made our way section by section, we come uh, to Ephesians 4, uh, verse 26 and 27. Uh, but also to shed light on that passage, we want to read from Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Now, all of Scripture is, of course, given by inspiration and is therefore profitable. Uh, we also know that Scripture is uh, a living, a two-edged sword, a sword that cuts. Uh, the passage which we will be reading is one that especially cuts. Uh, it cuts deep to the very innermost thoughts of our heart. It does so with a surgical precision, but also with a spiritual purpose. It does not cut just simply to lay in its trail a wave of destruction. It cuts to expose sin so that there might then be the remedy, the remedy by way of repentance, the remedy by way of forgiveness, but also then the remedy by way of the putting off uh, of sin. So we read from Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that who is ever angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Then we turn over to the words of our text taken from Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Uh, congregation, including boys and girls, many of you have seen a, a pot on a stove come to a boil. It may take a while as the heat is applied to the pan and to the water uh, within that, that pot, but eventually, if the burner is set at the right temperature or maybe set too high, Eventually, the water starts to boil. Uh, and left unchecked, again, if the temperature is high enough, uh, that boil that begins with a few bubbles 
turns into a fury of activity. Maybe even bringing the whole matter to the point where the water overflows. This applies to many a person's heart, especially in regards to anger. There are many a person in this world who have hearts that are characterized by ongoing anger, an anger that has all sorts of implications for their mental health, even their physical health, to say nothing of their spiritual health. And now that's sad in and of itself, but even more discouraging is the fact that the churches have people sitting in their pews who are characterized by hearts of anger. Perhaps it's been something that took place years and years and years ago. Perhaps it's a general disposition where a person thinks they have been perpetually wronged by their fellow man, by life's circumstances, maybe even, they say, by God himself. And there they sit, service after service, year after year, angry. Uh, that no doubt was also the situation in the days of the Apostle Paul. And that no doubt is why the Holy Spirit inspired him to give this exhortation. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And notice the organic unity between his instructions and that of the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, Christ is saying, if you come into the worship service, and as you take your position in your pew, if you remember, ah yes, I'm angry towards that person. The words of Jesus Christ taken literally would imply you ought to leave. Not leave the church perpetually, but leave the worship service and go find your brother and be reconciled with him or with her and then come into the worship service. Now, sometimes we're so familiar with these instructions that we don't really take them seriously. Many of us have memorized parts of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. But have you ever seen someone leave the worship service as it was about to begin to pursue reconciliation so that they then could worship appropriately? I never have. But I think there are people who should have. And I'll make it more personal. There were times when I should have. Should have momentarily paused my attendance at corporate worship until there first could have been reconciliation. And so anger is something that the Scriptures take very, very seriously. And that's why we want to devote our attention this morning to just these two verses, 
The words of our text from verse 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. We're dealing with specific actions of conversion. This morning, death to anger. This text calls us to a life that puts anger to death. As we unfold that command, that exhortation, we'll notice, first of all, the description that is given in death to anger, and then secondly, the antidote in death to anger, and then thirdly, the importance of death to anger. So, through the Scriptures, our Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, calls us to a certain action. He commands us to a certain action. This is not just a suggestion. This is not Christ coming and saying, you know, you might want to consider perhaps possibly dialing down your anger a bit. This is Christ through the inspiration of his Apostle Paul speaking to the church, speaking to the Christians who make up the church, saying, do not give place to anger. Notice then, first of all, the description in death to anger. I I want to make clear, because I believe sometimes it is misunderstood. Verse 26 is not an encouragement to be angry. Now, you certainly read there, be angry and do not sin. The fear is that some might read that and only hear that and say, see, here's moral justification for me to be an angry person. Because many a person excuses their anger as being a righteous anger. And there is such a thing as righteous anger, which we'll consider in just a moment. But if you look at verse 31, that's why we would say that verse 26 is not an encouragement to exercise anger. Verse 31, which we'll consider in due time, the Lord willing, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So if we use verse 31, and if we use Matthew 5 to shed light on the beginning of verse 26, we can be clear that this is not an encouragement to exercise anger. But rather, this is an encouragement, it is a command to put off anger. Now we said that there is a certain righteous indignation, a certain righteous anger. We know this because Jesus Christ himself displayed a righteous indignation, especially when he went in to the temple and saw there the money changers who had completely corrupted the corporate worship that was taking place or that was supposed to take place within the temple. And in his righteous, holy, sinless anger, he turned those tables over and he drove out the money changers. Just know this, that righteous anger is righteous because it is directed against sin, against blatant sin, against habitual sin. But we just simply leave that clarification for now and we return uh, to this whole idea of this anger that needs to be put off in connection with the sanctifying work of mortification. God's redeeming grace is a transformative grace. It transforms, it changes the form of a person's soul. Now, our soul is spiritual, it's not material, so we're not talking about changing the form of a material substance like you might do, you know, with Play-Doh or or, or clay or, or some other type of object. We're talking about the transformation of a spiritual element of our very existence. So we could simply say it this way, God's redemptive grace 
changes the hearts of people who are underneath the influence of that redemptive grace. And we call this, in part, sanctification, the being made holy. And one of the aspects of sanctification, one of the parts of being made holy underneath God's redemptive grace is that there are certain sinful tendencies, inclinations, habits that are put to death within our soul and therefore within our life as a result of God's transformative grace. And if you, perhaps in your Bible, you need to flip back a page as I do, but if you go back uh, to verse 22 uh, of Ephesians 4, uh, we remind ourselves that this is the aspect of mortification, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And so the injunction, the command, is that we put off a certain former way of conduct, a certain former lifestyle, a certain formal, former rather, uh, attitude of our heart. Uh, and we talked about this, and boys and girls, maybe you remember the analogy we tried to give uh, of, of clothing that's soiled, that, that's dirty, maybe even, maybe even that, that stinks. And you don't just go and hang it up in your closet and say, I'm going to put that in there. It's dirty, it's soiled, it stinks, but I'm going to put it there. No, you, you throw it in the dirty clothes. You throw it uh, into the washing machine, and if it's too soiled, and if it's too filthy, perhaps you even throw it into the trash. And that's the command. This ungodly anger that can so characterize a person's soul needs to be thrown out needs to be put off, needs to be dealt with definitively. Uh, because this anger is an ungodly passion. And, and that's what anger is. It's, it's a passion or it's an emotion of, of our inner being that, yes, finds expression through our mouths especially, perhaps also through our facial gestures or, or other types of nonverbal communication. But when you get to the hard root of the matter, anger is just that, a heart issue. It is this ungodly emotion, this passion of bitterness, of wrath, of angst, whereby a person believes that they have been wronged, and then they hold on to a vindictive spirit because of their perception, and maybe at times it's true, that the person has been wronged. And so really at the heart of anger is this vindictiveness that wants to somehow lash out, somehow tear down the other person, somehow punish the other person, somehow get vengeance upon the other person, or upon the life circumstances that have brought this unpleasantry experience. Now, I just want to read numerous passages to try to convince us, and I understand I cannot convince us, it's the Holy Spirit who must convince us, but the Holy Spirit convinces us through His Word. I want to read a number of passages to convince us that this ungodly anger is just that ungodly, because you and I and I speak by my own personal experience, we love to justify our anger. 
We say, well, that's the way I am. I'm a passionate person. And maybe even we cloak it with the garb of a certain type of religious veneer. We say, well, I'm passionate for the truth. Or maybe we appeal to our ethnicity. Say, well, I'm just a stubborn Dutchman. There's nothing I can do about it. I call it like it is. I shoot straight. I'm a black and white person. I've found in my experience that people who say that about themselves, they shoot straight when they're talking about other people. They're black and white when they're talking about other people. They call it like it is when they're talking about other people. And they are amazingly guilty of double standards when it comes to their own situation. So to remind us of the evil of ungodly anger, Proverbs 12, verse 16, a fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. Proverbs 29, verse 8, scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. Proverbs 30, verse 33, for as the churning of milk produces butter, and wringing the nose produces blood, so the forcing of wrath produces strife. James 19, sorry, James 1, verse 19 and 20, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I just want to pause there as I ask myself this question. Are you a person who is characterized by being quick to listen and slow to speak? Or would it be more accurate to say that you are quick to speak and slow to listen? We are called to be those who are quick to listen and slow to speak. This is a characteristic, especially that is to apply to those in positions of leadership within the church. Titus 1 verse 7, for a bishop or an elder must be not quick-tempered, not an angry man, not a man whose passions run ahead of themselves. And then, of course, the text that we read from Matthew 5, verse 22, where Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So the Scriptures are clear, ungodly anger is just that, ungodly. And it must be put off. And it must be put off in part by what we consider in our second point, the antidote in death to anger. By antidote, we have this understanding, a medicine or other remedy for counteracting the effects of poison disease. And I I chose that word purposefully because anger is a poison. It's a spiritual poison that left unchecked will influence the entirety of the person negatively. So the antidote is twofold. First of all, the proper attitude and then a quick action. The proper attitude towards anger, and we speak here again of an ungodly anger, of an unrighteous anger, the proper attitude is to stop excusing ungodly anger. Stop justifying ungodly anger. 
Stop blame-shifting ungodly anger. Don't say, well, the reason I'm angry in an ungodly sense is because he, because she, because this, because that, or even because God. If you find in your heart, maybe even subconsciously, excusing your unrighteous anger, lovingly I say, stop. Your excuses will not get you anywhere with God. If you say, well, I've harbored this ungodly anger for years, but I've done it because God is not going to say, okay, that's, that, that's fair. Eliminate Matthew 5 from the Bible. Eliminate Ephesians 4 from the Bible. Carry on in your ungodly anger. God's not going to do that. Do not be angry. The antidote includes also a godly humility. The best defense is a good offense. And so many times uh, we, we address our own physical condition this way and, and the physical health of our children, and we say, you know, if, if we can develop a strong immune system. Uh, the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I will identify for myself and for you the most valuable preventative towards anger is that of humility, that of meekness. The humble, meek person is the person who is best immune towards ungodly anger, towards some self of selfish wrath. And what is the attitude of humility? The attitude of humility is just to view and to esteem others better than ourselves. Not in some type of ungodly self-deprecation. Not in some type of self-loathing. But to reckon with our own self and try to avoid a selfish focus that so often leads to anger. Because when a person, and I speak again of, of an ungodly anger, when a person is angry, most often it is because they believe that they have been deprived of something that they believe is their right. Maybe it's the right of respect. Maybe it's the, the perceived right of some type of influence. Maybe it's the perceived right of, of some type of honor. When, it, when a person is self-absorbed, and when others don't fall in line with their self-absorption, they become very angry towards that. Why can't everyone else see how important I am? Why can't everyone else see how I deserve this, how I have a right to this? And what humility does is it eliminates all of that from the very beginning. And I've said this before. Do you know, according to Scripture, who the most humble, the meekest man in the Old Testament was? It was Moses. Now, he wasn't perfect. He struck the rock out of anger rather than speaking to it. But how many times didn't Israel 
grumble against his leadership. And what was his response many times? Interceding on their behalf. That's the characteristic of meekness. Not responding in kind to the grumblings of Israel. Not becoming characterized by an ungodly spirit of angst, but interceding on their behalf. Because this proper attitude leads to quick actions uh, that are good antidotes. The quick action of reconciliation. Now, I'm not referring here to the overlooking of sin, but I'm referring here to the quickness to pursuing reconciliation biblically. And this is why Jesus Christ says, if you come with your gift to the altar, in our context, if you come to present your gift of corporate worship, and in the assembly of the saints, to remember that you have something against your brother, go and be reconciled. Pursue reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation through communication. Pursue reconciliation through repentance. Pursue reconciliation through forgiveness. I think perhaps I shared with you at one point over the past year and a half approximately, and I can share the story because one of these persons is now in glory. I once knew two brothers who were both elders in Reformed churches in the same geographical location who hadn't talked to each other at all for decades because of a spat that they had had. And sometimes we wonder why the church doesn't experience more blessings. These were men, that I knew both of them, these were men who complimented themselves on being contenders for the faith. These were men, oh, they called it like they saw it. They were men who were black and white. But they completely ignored the exhortation of Matthew 5. And they did not live in peace because they were not willing to pursue reconciliation. You want to avoid anger in your heart? Be quick, be quick to pursue reconciliation. Be quick to seek and to extend forgiveness. We'll get to this, Lord willing, also when we get to verse 32 of Ephesians 4, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let me just simply say verse 32 is a powerful antidote to prevent anger. Be kind. Forgive. Also the action of forbearance. Forbearance is an antidote to anger. This is seen also in Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. Not in the sense of ignoring sin, not in the sense of dealing unbiblically with sin, but love covers all sin as it deals with sin in a biblical manner. But be willing to be forbearant, to bear long, to suffer long 
with one another. The passion of ungodly anger must be put to death with an attitude of humility and with the actions of reconciliation, forgiveness, and forbearance. But why? That brings us into our third point, the importance of death to anger. And my desire in this, in this point here is to convince us of the absolute importance of dealing with anger very, very, very quickly. Because many of us say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is shown in verse 7, nor give place to the devil. The devil is a real person. Now, a spiritual person, he doesn't have a body. He's a spiritual created person, but he's very real. And there have been recently certain events that have brought up a bit more interest in devils and demons and demonic possessions. And it's not my purpose this morning to comment on that, but just simply to point out this. The devil is real, and he seeks an entryway into our lives. Out of diabolical hatred for God and for Christ and for the Christian and for the Christian church, the devil would love to find some way into your heart and some way into my heart. And he's very subtle. So for, for those of us who are, are living according to the general principles of the Word of God, we don't have to be worried about the devil coming up and knocking on our front door and saying, hello, I'm Lucifer. I would like control of your soul. Oh, he, he's more subtle than that. What he does, he tries to sneak in the back door through ungodly anger. Because what the devil loves to do is create hardness of heart. Indifference of heart. If he can get his way into your soul and create a certain callousness, a certain indifference, a certain hardness. That's his favorite tactic. And what he does at times is he uses anger to accomplish that hardening of heart. And he brings up the temperature, so to speak, on the proverbial stove by life circumstances and by sowing seeds of thoughts within your mind. I don't deserve this. That person hasn't dealt with me the way they should. Life's circumstances haven't dealt with me the way that they should. And Satan will come and he'll, he'll plant seed after seed after seed of thought. And then he'll encourage you to stew upon this and to, and to turn up the temperature a little bit more on the stove uh, until the water of your soul's thoughts begin to boil over. And the more that a person focuses upon how they've been wronged, or at least how they perceive that they have been wronged, sometimes you can even see this in their very demeanor. They become consumed with anger. And this can at times become evident in just passing conversations. You, you might go, oh, what got into that person? The answer just might be the devil. The devil. 
because they're awfully angry against their fellow man and against God himself. I want to summarize William Hendrickson in his commentary. Actually, quote, not summarize. Sinful anger gives Satan a foothold in the heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you harbor sinful anger, you are giving Satan a foothold into your heart and into your life? This is why it is so important to put to death ungodly anger. Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15 There the author to the Hebrews writes, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Pursue is a a very intense word, run after seek to lay hold of. Pursue peace. It's not always possible to obtain peace. That's not the question. The question is not, have you been successful in obtaining peace with all people? The question is, have you pursued peace with all people? Well, why should we pursue peace with all people? Because without pursuing peace, which is an expression of holiness, No one will see the Lord. Because if you don't pursue peace, you give place to anger. And anger has its accompaniment, bitterness. And what anger and bitterness do is they harden the soul so that a person becomes in danger of falling short of the grace of God. Of falling short of the grace of God and also of defiling many. And this is one of the most deadly things about anger is that it can be multi-generational. Generally speaking, we say generally because there are exceptions that prove the rule. Generally speaking, angry parents produce angry children, which produce angry grandchildren. And sometimes we have this in Reformed churches, and it's basically the Hatfield and the McCoys brought into the Reformed camp. Well, why is this person so angry against that person? Well, his dad was angry against that person's dad. Oh, and their grandpas, you know, they they had an issue going all the way back to 30, 70, 100 years ago. That's just the way they are. Those two families, they don't get along at all. Brothers and sisters, that's just plain not right. It's just not right. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because if you do, and I warn myself, because I wrestle with this just as much as anybody, if you let your sun, if you let the sun go down in your anger, you may wake up the next morning just a little bit more angry and a little bit more bitter and a little bit more hardened in your heart. That's a real danger. A deadly danger. Again, to quote William Hendrickson, ungodly anger quickly leads to resentment 
and hatred and an unforgiving attitude. And if that speaks to you this morning, put that anger to death. Because like a deadly intruder into your home, you have two options. By the grace of God, you either put ungodly anger to death or ungodly anger will kill you. It's that serious. It's really that serious. And that's why the Scriptures speak with such concise but also precise brevity. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Amen.